hello everyone and welcome to the second in a series of podcasts on the theme of objectivity and neutrality in the archives. I am John Peelan, Director of the Scottish Council of Archives, and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Karen Roybal, Assistant Professor of Southwest Studies, Colorado College in Colorado Springs. Karen describes her teaching methodology as interdisciplinary, focusing on literature, arts, culture, archival studies, Southwest borderlands history, and environmental justice. I invited Karen to participate in the series after reading an article that she wrote in 2020 in the Journal of the Center for Interdisciplinary Teaching and Learning, Navigating Archives of Power, What's the Objective? And, and I'll come back to that later. Also for her admiration for the writings and teachings of Professor Michelle Caswell, who I interviewed for the first in a series of podcasts. So welcome, Karen. Thank you, John, for inviting me to be here. It's really exciting to be having a conversation about the archives. Well, it's very exciting to meet you, Karen. I wonder if maybe we could just kick off. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your own background and your, your journey to um, your current position at Colorado College. Sure. Well, I certainly didn't envision myself becoming a professor. I grew up in a working class family in a small rural town in New Mexico, and I attended the closest major university, which was the University of New Mexico. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in journalism and mass communication with an emphasis in, in advertising, and my uh, master's degree is also in communications. So at that time in my life, I was really drawn to the power of language and communicating messages. So I spent a number of years doing marketing, copywriting, and then later technical writing. But those jobs were unfulfilling in terms of how I was thinking about identity at that particular moment in my life, which prompted me to consider going back to school for a PhD. And so I was still thinking about the power of words, but this time I was thinking about personal stories and, and I was particularly interested in the idea of testimonios or testimonies that reflected on personal identity and experience. And I decided that I wanted to go back to school, but because I'd been out of school for quite a while, I got my feet wet by taking uh, graduate courses as, as a non-degree seeking student. And then I found my home in American studies where interdisciplinary frameworks rooted in historical analysis, literary analysis, and, and cultural studies really sort of grabbed my attention. So during my graduate studies, I was um, introduced to the archive and I guess perhaps uh, experienced the seduction of the archive when my advisor had me conducting archival research where I was really seeing firsthand the, the multiple layers or that sort of palimpsest of stories that are visible within a single archive. And then later on, I went to do a uh, postdoc at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I had the extreme honor of being mentored by historian Antoinette Burton, whose scholarship and her theorizing about the archive really influenced my thinking about um, the archival gaps. And so I was uh, particularly drawn to how Dr. Burton described the archive as a site of knowledge production, but also she described it as this contact zone. And so these conceptions of the archive, I think are really imperative, um, as Dr. Burton reminds us, to think about, you know, the fact that archives don't necessarily emerge fully formed. Um, and so her reflections really encouraged me to also think about those intersections of power in the archive, especially in how power shapes the narratives found in the archive. 
So much of what I learned from Dr. Burton influenced how I conceptualized the idea of what I call the alternative archive, um, which I lay out in, in my book, um, Archives of Dispossession, that was published by the University of North Carolina Press in, in 2017. Yes, what you said there, um, Karen, is quite interesting um, on, on a number of levels. I'm, I'm really fascinated by the idea that you, you started off in journalism and, and marketing and, and then you know, switched to um, a, 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 a piece of work or, or work that involved um, understanding testimonies of people and, and trying to interpret um, their stories as told through the archives and all the different multiple layers that are within the archives. Um, do you think there there was um, a change, a difference in, in your outlook when you switched from communicating via traditional journalistic methods to, to understanding archives as something that are perhaps meant to be more neutral and, and objective? I think so. I mean, certainly the the sort of marketing work that I was doing and the copywriting that I was doing was in many ways persuasive writing. Um, for instance, for, at one point I worked for a real estate company and I was doing marketing for them, uh, basically enticing folks to purchase property. Um, and interestingly enough, right, I take the turn in my research now where I'm writing about property, but I'm writing about um, Mexican women in particular, and the ways in which they use their testimonies to talk about notions of property and inheritance. So I think, I mean, the, the form of writing is definitely different. And the subject matter sort of ironically, I turned back to, uh, but just from a different sort of perspective or vantage point. Yeah, one of the things you said is that you kind of come to an understanding that, that, that archives are not fully formed. And if I could mention uh, part of the conversation that I had with uh, Professor Michelle Caswell, where we talked about you know, the, the issue of whether or not archives are static objects fixed through time and space or whether they, they change uh, over time. I mean, is that something that you, that you, you believe, that, that, that archives are not static? There are, in fact, things that, that can open to different interpretations and therefore are, are malleable in a sense. Certainly, yes. And that's something that I um, emphasize to my students. I, I mentioned um, that I teach a course on the archive. It's called Archives of Power. And that's certainly mm -hmm. one of the things that my students and I discuss is that we have this notion, I think, sort of the, and here I'm thinking of us as sort of the broader public of thinking as archives as static, but really they are dynamic. And part of why they're dynamic is the ways that we come to the archive, the ways that we're interpreting the archive those methods change over time. Um, and certainly I think for the better um, through work like Michelle Caswell's, right? Where we're thinking about what it means to decolonize the archive. Well, I'll, I'll come back to that phrase decolonizing the archive um, later in this discussion, because it's something that means different things, I think to different people. And it'd be interesting to hear what your interpretation of it is. And um, the, the word archive or the term archives or, or word, ar it's something that's, is perhaps open to interpretation itself. Uh, here we describe the archive as the, the documented memory of the nation. Um, on the other hand, you know, I, I read that archives are not neutral sources, that they're, they're created not to provide documentary evidence, but to perform a specific task. And this could be anything from um, conveying personal thoughts in a private letter, for example, letters home from, from the war, 
are arguing for policy changes in a government memorandum. So do you think that that, that statement is true, that archives are not neutral sources? Indeed. I, I think we take for granted and, and perhaps even assume that archives hold objective histories. And we forget that archives are mediated, that they're created and they record history in a way that renders a story from a very specific vantage point. For example, the archive has historically privileged accounts from those whose voices are deemed important enough to record. Um, and only now are we sort of rethinking, right, whose voices count in the archival record. And I think this, this question, I really appreciate it because it, it makes me think of the work of Michelle Rotrio, um, whose book Silencing the Past is, is also real influential in terms of the way I think about history and the archive, especially in the ways that he emphasizes the idea of the production of narratives within archives and how historical records and what's held in the archive um, was developed within a system in which we place valuation on those whose stories matter in the Western or dominant record. Um, in our past, you know, societies assumed that historical narratives were rooted in truth with the capital T, but we need to consider that there are multiple truths, many of which do not get recorded in what we might deem the official or dominant record. And Trio says this really plainly. He says, history is a story about power, a story about those who won. And, and I think he's absolutely correct. So as we continue to interrogate and, and critically analyze the archive, it begins to reveal to us that sort of inherent implotment of those historical rec records that tend to be captured in the archive. Uh, in the series that I recorded last year on the theme of archives and records in the time of COVID-19, um, we, we referenced a statement that the International Council of Archives put out back in May uh, um, 2020, or perhaps earlier, certainly early on in, in the pandemic, about the, uh, the importance of records in the time of global crisis, that, 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 it, that the role of the archivists and the record managers in terms of creating and providing evidence for decision-making was really valuable. But from what you're saying, we can't necessarily trust the archives as an objective truth um, because they are, as you say, open to interpretation. Yes, I, I would, I do believe that's true. And, and uh, you know, it's not to say that everything in the archive is false, but it is to say that we do need to be more critical in our engagement with what's in the archive, right? Who is doing the telling um, through the archive? And then thinking about, well, what are we missing in this story, right? That's being documented um, in the record. So I think that that's another important step that we need to think about in terms of uh, the, the process of collecting archives even, but also the ways in which we're analyzing the archives once we get in there. Sure. Um, Michelle um, Caswell also talked about, I mean, you know, she, she, she was really putting forward a call to arms to, to, to people working in the archive sector to be less neutral. I think there's a phrase on, on, a, on a website that, that uh, she, it's a collective she's part of which is archivists against a history repeating itself. And, and the phrase on the website is neutrality is a drag. Um, sh should archivists be agents for social justice for change or should they not be as neutral as possible in terms of managing and process processing archival material? Well, I certainly think that archivists can help with sort of helping us to rethink um, the ways in which we privilege the archive. So um, I think at least the way that I 
understand the role of the, the archivist, right, is to help acquire and process and examine collections that provide a more holistic story of historical narratives. And as I think about the process of acquisition, for instance, I see this part of the archival process as a place for intervention, probably in much the same way that, that Michelle Caswell does. Archivists are often subject to institutional policies that dictate the collection process. So for instance, they're encouraged to accept or collect archives from families who have historically been deemed significant to a particular region or institution. Uh, I teach at a private liberal arts college, for instance, where it's not uncommon for donors to donate their family papers or their ephemera related to the history of the college. And this is typical, I think, in, in many archives throughout you know, the nation. But what about the alternative stories and the archives that get elided. We're lucky here in Colorado at Colorado College because our archivist is really invested in collecting alternative archives that tell other stories about the college, about the region of the U.S. Southwest um, where our college is located. Because our region is comprised of large populations of marginalized communities, so Native and Indigenous peoples, Latino and Chicano communities. So collecting their stories is really imperative in terms of our particular archive. But I don't necessarily think that this is the case in other institutions. But, but I do think that archival epistemologies are changing and collections and acquisitions restrictions are changing. And also who's doing the collecting is changing as well, right? So the, the composition of who becomes arch an archivist, right, is also changing. So each of these measures is really important, especially in the contemporary moment, and especially as we conceptualize how to continue uh, moving towards this idea of decolonizing the archive. So our systems evaluation have to change, in other words, in order for that process to happen. So, so who would you say is, is the ultimate responsibility for that? You, you mentioned, you know, the reality that, that most archivists work within a, a larger organization. Are, are archivists themselves um, ultimately responsible to, for ensuring that, that, that their work is representative of, of as wide a section of society as possible, particularly, for mar particularly representative of marginalized communities? Are, are archivists um, not ultimately responsible. That is something that uh, really needs to go higher up in the in the decision making tree. Well, I think it has to be a collaborative process. That's that's a huge onus to put on the archivist. I think so. It has to be you know a combination of the archivist, those higher up who who you know, we have to answer to um, in terms of who gets to make those decisions ultimately. But also I think even, you know, I think of my role as a scholar who's using the archive, right, as, as a place where that um, collaboration and intervention also needs to happen, that we um, work together to honor uh, the stories who haven't been told or to fight for collections that maybe wouldn't necessarily have historically been accepted within particular institutions. So, I mean, it's, it's a major shift that, you know, I'm sort of thinking about, right? It's a major ideological shift, I think, especially in terms of um, thinking about the structures of uh, archival collection, right? Who gets to make those ultimate decisions. So I think that it has to be sort of a combination of each of the sort of stakeholders in, in those particular archives. Um, Karen, if I could um, quote from you some of the things that you uh, wrote in your article 
from 2020, Navigating Archives of Power, what's the objective? You, you talked about teaching your students, uh, but giving them a more robust understanding of the genealogy of the archive and, and equipping them with the skills necessary to navigate a changing archival culture. Um, what do you mean by that, changing archival culture? What's changing? I think that this point really refers to the archival turn that so many before me have written about. Um, and so again, I go back to this idea of thinking interdisciplinarily um, and how that is important to understanding um, what we you know consider the historical record but also thinking about like the entanglement of memory and history so that my students understand that archives are mediated but also how to make sense of each of those ideas through careful and critical examination to um, really understand and unpack what we mean by the genealogy of the archive right to um, demonstrate to them how that genealogy remains Right? We have those imprints, but we also need to shift the ways that we um, analyze the archive, the ways in which we have to look sort of between the lines in some cases for those stories that tend to get elided within the archive, that they may be there, but we have to do a lot of digging uh, in order to bring those stories to the surface. Um, the academic that you mentioned uh, who's influenced you, Antoinette Burton, um, I know she's talked about the, the, the elitism of the, of the discipline of, of archives. Um, and I just want to come on to that now, that, that, that uh, issue that you've mentioned a few times about decolonizing the archive. Um, Michelle Caswell is quite strong on this in terms of her, her interpretation is that, as she says, white supremacist attitudes have defined uh, the way archival material has been uh, chosen and, and collected in the past. What, 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 how do you define that, that um, statement, decolonizing the archive? Or, or what's your response to, to the accusation that, uh, that there has been too much elitism in the discipline and that that's something that needs to change? Mm -hmm. Well, I do certainly think that um, Antoinette Burton and Michelle Caswell, that their thoughts about the archive and sort of this idea of the elitism, the need for decolonization, that they, their uh, points of view really intersect. Um, and, and I think both of them also really uh, hone in on the idea of the lack of interdisciplinarity in our studies of the archive alongside right the devaluation of archivists themselves and the privileging of the historian as the one who is allowed to tell the story based on the archival imprints but i really find um, michelle caswell's um, understanding and discussion about decolonizing the archive really important um, because what she's doing, right? I mean, it really sort of informs the way I'm teaching this, this course called Archives of Power. Um, and my students will be reading her introduction to a special issue of uh, archival science that she co-authored with JJ Goddard. And in this introduction, they discuss how we move towards a decolonial archival praxis, which really requires uh, what might be sort of categorized as a liberatory praxis. So on the one hand, they call for a definition um, of decolonization that, that's been posited by Eve Tuck and Kay Wayne Yang that calls for a repatriation of indigenous lands. But at the same time, they draw our attention to the need to decolonize the mind, which means a major dismantling of colonial structures and systems of oppression that have guided and really sort of 
could provide the, the archive. So it's not surprising that archives have been guided by these colonial structures, uh, but you know, as we think about decolonizing the archive from an archival studies perspective, it requires a real intersectional approach where archivists, scholars within other disciplines, and communities work together to generate both practical and theoretical ways to dismantle these white supremacist and colonial structures that attempt to, and in some cases, continue to dictate our historical narratives and records that are deemed, you know, sort of authentic. So I think what you're saying is, is that um, the archival process is something which is part of a wider issue that needs to be addressed, where there's a need for, you know, large scale societal and cultural shift in terms of our, our understanding and interpretation of what's important in history, what should be kept and what should be recorded and what should be retold. Um, but surely, if it wasn't for archivists, then, then, then there wouldn't be any of this at all, that, that, that we just have to accept the reality that in the past, that it was a different world with a different cultures. But if it hadn't been for archivists, then the, the, the evidence that we currently have just wouldn't exist. I definitely see your point. Uh, those earliest recordings or archives are definitely important. And as an example, in the program where I teach in Southwest Studies at Colorado College, we do a deep historical dive into the colonial history of what became the U.S. Southwest. So we are very much reliant on uh, Spanish colonial records, for instance, created by settler colonizers, which included a large number of Franciscan priests who happened to be, um, you know, good record keepers and who kept very lengthy and detailed records. And for many years, those were the only records that we had to inform our understanding of settler colonialism in the New World. So I don't think we should completely ignore those records, but we should critically engage with them to also think about the perspectives that are missing from those accounts. Those accounts are very much one-sided, and in those accounts, the conquistadors were essentially justifying their very costly expeditions and the genocide that they were inflicting on Native and Indigenous peoples, and the Franciscan priests were attempting to validate why they needed to convert Native peoples to Christianity, whom they deemed inferior. But if we took those archival documents, we'd miss the fact that, as Michael Lynch states, the archive is never raw or primary. So where is the native or indigenous voice in these records? So for me, that means we have to do intense investigatory work and sometimes speculative work because in many cases, we don't have access to indigenous voices during that period of colonization. So thinking about the value of those original records along with the role of the archivist is extremely important. And I think where we have to come together is in how we're analyzing the archive, which uh, points back to a point that I made earlier about the value of collaboration between researchers, archivists, and I would say descendant communities to provide a more holistic story, whether that be you know, to inform a national history, a community, or a local history. But we really do have to work together to provide that more robust and accurate history. Um, something that you mentioned earlier about how archivists are perhaps less valued than they were before. It's, it's, it's a theme that we discussed a lot in the first series of podcasts I recorded in 2020, that until we recognize the value of archivists and the value of record keeping, then the, the sort of issues that you're talking about are, are, are not going to go away. Uh, and I wondered what your thoughts were, you know, particularly in terms of your, your, your coursework and the students that you, that you work with, and, and how do we go about 
doing more to, to value the work of, of archivists and, and record keepers in society. And, and by doing that, we can help to change attitudes as well. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the ways that I do that in my class is by emphasizing the significance of establishing a relationship with the archivist with whom you work. And so when I am able to teach uh, under under different circumstances, right, not COVID-related circumstances, I take my students out in the field and we travel to different archival repositories throughout the Southwest. And so I, before we head out into the field, I tell my students about my own experiences. So I provide my own testimony, I guess, in many ways about the ways in which I've worked with archivists to, uh, you know, as I'm, as I'm, generating my own research to foster that research and the relationship I have with the with the archivist because essentially you know while I don't necessarily um, want to label archivists as the guardians of the archive and in some ways they are right because they know those archives really well because of all the back end work that we don't get to see um, you know as researchers when we go into the archives right we just sort of get the final products um, but but we need to also recognize all the labor that has gone into compiling those archives and those collections and creating finding gates for instance so I emphasize to my students the importance of establishing um, a, a good, strong relationship with archivists. And then, you know, they get to see firsthand when we go out in the field, how, you know, that rapport that I've developed with archivists um, in the field really um, helps to further, right, the, the projects that we're working on. Um, and, and so I, I really sort of emphasize that throughout the course, but I think they really see it in practice when we go out into the field so that we're not, it's not about theorizing the archive anymore, right? It's understanding those collaborative, um, those collaborative relationships between archivist and researcher that are so significant, I think, for changing the ways that we um, view the archivist and their role. Yeah, and that collaborative relationship between the archivist and researcher is really important. But the collaborative relationship is also important, I would have thought, between other users of archive services. And that's many people who are not researchers or academics, just, just ordinary members of the public. But, but also, I wondered what your thoughts were about, about archivists engaging with, with the wider community, the, the living community, to understand that, that their stories, not just communities from the past. How, how important is it that um, archivists and record keepers engage with their, the, the local communities in their area? I think it's, it's very important, especially because, you know, if we want to... Uh, sort of dismantle this divide between um, the university and and the communities within which they're housed, uh, that's one important step, right, is, is paying attention to who your community members are. And we see um, the, the necessity for this type of, of breaking down, right, of, of those um, inherent sort of hierarchies uh, in archives in, in libraries, right, or community um, archives that are being established. Um, but we also see it in, in museum spaces, for instance, where the roles of um, record keepers there are also changing. So I think it's very important for um, archivists to have relationships with the communities um, in which they 
they're housed. Um, and, and also, I think we've seen a surge in, in many ways in terms of the number of community archives that are developing. And that's another way in which we get those alternative stories that I, that I mentioned earlier um, and, and get, getting them from a different perspective, right, from, from the folks uh, whose communities have been impacted by uh, histories, right, and, and sort of thinking about the significance of those community stories told from the perspective of those who have been impacted by events, by sites, by, you know, um, all, all of those areas of, of history. Um, Karen, we've spoken um, a lot about the, the understanding that, that, that archives and the archival processes is neither neutral um, nor objective. Um, and you've written about how the, the archive, it's, it's, it's the, what's left out of the archive is as much an active process as what's kept. Um, and, and through that, that active process of leaving out, we, we have learned what was deemed something to be forgotten, what we've learned about the decisions that were made at some point that something wasn't valuable or important enough to be forgotten. And from your, your own experience, you know, particularly talking about the, the, the testimonies work that you've done, and what, what have you uncovered that you think was left out of the official record that you know, is of so much value and so, so important that it, it needs to be reintroduced? Mm -hmm. So um, you know, to think about the, the first part of your question, the, the ways that I describe this sort of active process of, of forgetting to my students is to get them to think about the messiness of the archive for lack of a better way to put it so that they understand um, or they might better understand how archiving is the system through which items and memories are preserved so that they are remembered but then we also have to think about the active process about of forgetting right so again goes back to the earlier points um, that we discussed about um, archives being dynamic right that that it's this it is this active process even though we might deem the archive as static it's really not so i think the the same thing goes for the ways that we that i think about historical discourses based on events or experiences that are recorded but they're recorded from particular vantage points in my own research that happens to be the U.S. legal system, which was formed, you know, at least in the Southwest, where I'm writing about, um, in 1848, just after the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and the U.S. Uh, establishes their legal system that requires uh, Mexican, at this time, Mexican property owners to come to the courts to essentially um, claim their rights as, as property holders. But what, what gets you know, sort of erased from these stories is that uh, it becomes a story about men. And I saw that in, unfolding in the archive. And so in between, I found far and few between, I found the voices of women. And so the story of colonized women, at least in my case, gets erased through the archival record that privileges the stories of men. Well, and, and is that really the, 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 the central issue is that you know, up until a certain point, the, 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 how we interpreted history was through the, the eyes of men, through the writings of men. And it's only by circumstance that the, the, the stories of women um, are starting to be properly understood and properly appreciated. Uh, I mean, would you say that that, that um, patriarchal approach to 
to history, and, and certainly that's underpinned perhaps uh, the process of archiving up to a certain point, is something that is that is changing. I, mean, I did make the point when I interviewed Michelle Caswell that um, there are many more women that work in the archive sector now than, than men, and that's something that has probably changed significantly over the last 30 to 40 years. Is, is that something that, that, that you can see real evidence of significant change? Yes, I, I certainly think that there there is evidence of significant change, um, not only is in who is doing the archiving, but also in whose stories are being collected, in the ways that we're sort of examining the logics of archival systems and the the hierarchies that dictate those systems, whether those be you know authoritarian, institutional, colonial, gendered, and even heteronormative, right? So I think that we're so I, I'm really happy to hear right that you're um, in this series going to also emphasize like LGBTQ. Sure. Uh, archives, for instance, right, because they have, at least our systems for, you know, how many ever years have been dictated by heteropatriarchy um, and those structures that guide, right, the ways in which we privilege particular uh, historical narratives over others. So I, I do certainly think that it's changing. Yeah, I'm. I'm just going back to to your use of the word messiness, and I, I'm. I'm guessing that there may be some archivists listening in on this podcast who might balk at suggesting that what they do is messy. But I, I think what you mean is that it's not clear cut in terms of you know, what what to value and what what and what what to dispose of, what what can be forgotten. But but it also seems to me that that what you're saying is that there are so many stories yet to be told. Uh, I mean, there's half the human population of the stories of women that many of which have been erased from the history books or not even told in the history books in the first place and are, and, and are there in the archive but really need to be teased out and, and explained. Uh, in Scotland, we have um, the Glasgow Women's Library, for example, which you know, is devoted to telling the stories and histories of women in Scotland. It's, it's, you know, it's an incredibly important uh, resource. It, it, but not just for women, obviously, but we, you mentioned LGBT, but also uh, the stories of the marginalized, you know, the, the poor people, people whose stories are only told from the perspective of people who look down on them. It, it seems that there's, there must be you know, rich, uh, as yet untapped vein of stories yet to be told from the archive. Yes, I, I completely agree, and and I didn't didn't mean to I in no way undermine <laughs> the work of the archivist, right? In terms of the ways that I'm thinking about the messiness of the archive, um, really sort of centers on on the entanglements I think that happen, sure. right? In terms of thinking about um, cultural memories that are preserved in the archive, for instance, and uh, you know sort of the the standard or traditional histories that get told publicly. So that's that's what I mean by the messiness of the archive. But definitely, I mean, I think that those stories, those those alternative stories, right? The the stories of um, my, minority communities, of of women, of LGBTQ, right? That those uh, stories are in the archive. We just have to sometimes do the work of exhuming them. Right? Um, and, and that's, I think, sort of where we are right now is we're engaged in that process very actively um, throughout the world in terms of thinking about uh, making those stories visible within the archival record. And sometimes that means first, you know, locating them is the first step. And then second is, is rendering them visible, right, in, in ways that they haven't been before. Um, 
If I could go back to the, the, the issue of, you know, the perceived elitism of, of the discipline that Antoinette Burton uh, mentioned, uh, I, I can't say what, what it's like in, in, in the United States, but certainly in the UK, there's an understanding that um, the, 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 the sector, the archival sector, and not just the archival sector, but the wider heritage sector is dominated by, um, by white middle class people. And so that there's a there's a certain degree of hand wringing around that and, and understandable angst, but it's something that you know it's difficult I think to to change or or maybe it isn't difficult to change. Um, do, I mean, do you feel that 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 elitism, for 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 want of a better word, is is still there, and is is it something that can be realistically changed in terms of? Um, the process of archiving the decision making still being made by 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 white people is something that can actually be changed in the short term i do think that it can be changed i do think that it is still there um and that change isn't going to be easy but i already see the change happening so i have great hope that it will continue to change as as we um, proceed through time and, and think about the ways in which our archives have historically been um, sort of captured right under this idea or this guise of, of the elitism. Um, and, and as we further interrogate, right, the ways in which we um, privilege particular stories or who is sort of controlling these stories, um, the all of those ideas are certainly shifting. Um, I, I don't think it's gonna happen overnight, but I do think it is happening and it will continue to happen, especially as uh, archival ide ideologies change. Yeah, I've, we, we mentioned that the, the, uh, the issue of archivists being described as guardians and, and you know, we, our archivists are also described as truth keepers and gatekeepers of the truth. I mean that from what from what you've been saying and from what Michelle Caswell said is um, is misleading, and and I wondered you know could you think of a better term to to define the rule of the archivist if it's not a, a gatekeeper regarding the truth because the truth is something that is open to interpretation and you should not fix it in, in the sense that you think it's this is the proper interpretation and no one else should dare to change that is is there another maybe term that we could use to to define the work of archivists yeah i think the way that i i view archivists right that, that they are stewards um, mm. of the archive in many ways i mean they are doing the collecting they are doing the organizing um and so in i, I view them as, as stewards not necessarily you know gatekeepers uh you know or guardians of the archive as derrida stated um so I think that the profession has also changed significantly. So I think that archivists are certainly more attuned to the stories that are missing within the archival record. And I believe that we tend to forget that archivists are also scholars. And thus the profession has changed in that it values archivist scholars who are really doing the onerous work of rethinking archival practices, much like Michelle Caswell's work. So I think the point you're making then, um, is that arch archivists are stewards, but the stewards not of something static, but of something living, something dynamic, um, that is there for anyone to 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 read and understand, and interpret and have a connection with. 
Definitely. I, I would definitely say that. And, and I think that's, that's one of the important sort of shifts that we have to make is, is in thinking about the archive as dynamic um, that, and, and then so are the processes, right? So if that is the case, then yes, our processes of archival collection, of um, systems evaluation, of who is an archivist, of how we determine right which stories are going to be told and how. I think that it's all going to change right once we have we sort of reckon with the idea of um, archives as dynamic. Um, Karen, uh, when we first started talking, you, you mentioned the your, your earlier career choices that took you into journalism and marketing. Um, and there's been a lot in the news over the last couple of years about the manipulation of truth, the, the, the phrase alternative truth and, and alternative facts um, have, been, have been bandied about. Um, archives as not, not being neutral, static things, but dynamic things, are, are they in the same way that, that, that facts can be manipulated? Are they also potentially dangerous in the wrong hands? Um, I mean, to, to a certain extent, right? I mean, I think that, um, you know, as we think about this idea of, of alternative facts, I mean, there, there's fictions within the archive, I think, that are always inherent um, because of the ways that they are constructed, right, that they are mediated. Um, so I think that there's a danger if we're not engaging critically with, with the stories that, that emerge from the archive, so th that that engagement critically is something that seems to be fundamental. That um, you know, when you open up a, a, an archival box and you take out documents, be they the, the, the letters or, or, or manuscripts, then you have to have an open mind to what's in them, and you have to be willing to interpret them, but in a wider and understand the wider context in which they were created. Yes, I, I do believe so. I, I mean, we often when we go into the archive, um, we start out with thinking of a particular story that we hope the archive is going to tell us. And I think when we go in, we need to be, we do definitely do need to be open in terms of thinking about what we're going to find when we get into the archive. And how do we report, right? going back to my journalistic training, I guess, uh, how do we report then what we're finding in the archive? And are we doing that uh, investigative work that allows us to read between the lines of what is in the archive. Because I think even in those, those dominant narratives that are important that I, you know, I mentioned earlier, they are important, but what are we seeing um, between the lines in those uh, official records? So I think that it, it is our responsibility, right? So putting the onus back on us too as, as scholars um, that go in and interrogate the archive, are we doing our due diligence in terms of interpreting what we're finding in the archive? Well, thank you, Karen. I think that that's perhaps a, a, a good way to end this conversation, although it could go on for much longer. It's been really, really fascinating. I, I really love the idea of archives being dynamic, you know, being, being almost organic, you know, having all sorts of uh, new possibilities and new potential for, for, for a whole range of different people. And I do love the, what you said about the, the onuses on the, the, the user and the interpreter of the archives to, to read between the lines, I think, and, and to do due diligence uh, when, when they're um, 
looking into the archive. I think that's an incredibly valuable message. So, Karen, thank you very much indeed. It's It's been a really uh, fascinating conversation and I, I really do appreciate the, the work that you're doing. And uh, I'm very grateful to you for, for taking the time to talk about objectivity and neutrality in the archives. Thank you very much, Karen. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate this conversation and the efforts that you're making towards having these multiple conversations about the archive. Thank you.